0: Welcome to UO Today. I'm Paul Pepys, Director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Laura Polito, Professor of Ethnic Studies and Geography at the University of Oregon. Prior to coming to the UO in 2016, Polito was Professor of American Studies and Ethnicity at the University of Southern California. Polito's re- research interests include critical human geography, political activism and social movements, environmental justice, Chicano Studies, and Los Angeles. Among Polito's numerous publications are the three books, Environmentalism and Economic Justice, Two Chicano Struggles in the Southwest, Black, Brown, Yellow, and Left, Radical Activism in Los Angeles, and A People's Guide to Los Angeles, co-authored by Laura Baracloff and Wendy Cheng. Thanks so much, Laura, for coming on the show.
1: Thanks for inviting me.
0: So tell us about your background and how that led to an academic career.
1: So uh, I grew up in Los Angeles and um, I think from a pretty early age as a child, I became aware of a couple of things. One is I became very interested in why LA was the way it was. So for example, why did it not snow? Mm-hmm. Why were there very few trees? Why did all the black people live in one place and the Mexicans lived in another place? Um, so those are the kind of the questions that I had that nobody could give me answers to. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a first generation college student. I'm a high school dropout. And, um, but those were the questions that animated me. Um, and I also became very cognizant early on as a child about um, the nature of racism but I had no language for it. Mm-hmm. You know, I was born in 1962, and at that time there was, you know, the Black Civil Rights Movement that was happening as I was a child. But how did that relate to me? I, I just couldn't understand it, and um, so I was always uh, acutely aware on the one hand of racism towards Mexicans, but I could not understand those things. So I think those were the questions that drove me and ultimately um, led me to. Uh, to to college so I could, uh, actually the truth is, I had a whole series of what I call my shit jobs after (laughs) high school. (laughs) I worked at like Kmart, McDonald's, and in all these cases it was one, very unfulfilling work, but also I always had men who were my bosses. And I at some point realized, you know what, they're no smarter than me, but they have control over me. So how can I get into a situation where that is not the case? And I realized, oh, well you have to go to school. And that's where I ended up in school then.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you've already said you you have very deep roots in LA. You earned a PhD in urban planning at UCLA. You worked at USC for 20 years. What drew you to the University of Oregon?
1: A couple of things. Um, One is, um, it's getting really hot in LA. (laughs) (laughs) Climate change is real. And uh, my body uh, is just having difficulty dealing with that kind of heat. So I was, we were looking for a cooler place. Second, I have one of my former students, my uh, PhD advisee, Dan Hosang, was here at the time and he had invited me up and I had met the folks in ethnic studies and they were just delightful and um, I I really liked what they were doing here. Many places in the United States, ethnic studies are often, uh, we call them the four food groups, right? Mm -hmm. So there's like Asian American studies, Native studies, Chicano-Latino studies, black studies, and here they were doing it together. And that really, really spoke to me and my work. Uh, They were a very congenial group of people doing some very exciting cutting edge work. So that was a big selling point. The other point that was uh, really attractive to me too is there's a geography department here. Mm -hmm. I first came to USC as a geographer, and then they abolished the geography department. Hmm. And so I was very much looking for a situation where I could reconnect somehow with, with geography, w- who I've always identified as a geographer. Hmm. So those were some of the, the things that, that drew me here.
0: So uh, not surprisingly, much of your research has been located in the southwestern US, particularly in Los Angeles. How do you think your research is going to shift now that you're in Oregon?
1: I've made a very conscious decision not to study LA and the southwest anymore. <laughs> Um, one of the reasons I s- did study Los Angeles is because um, it's where I was at, and I felt very it was very important to do work where I could be politically active also. Mm-hmm. I take those responsibilities as scholar activists very seriously. Mm-hmm. And so I, I look for that kind of special fit. Um I will I develop some kind of research program here in Oregon, but I also feel that this is a moment where I'm really going much more uh, broad I'm really focusing on the nation and the the United States as a whole now in terms of my research current research agenda
0: So you you alluded just now to the fact that you understand yourself as a scholar activist So tell us why that's the case why that's important to you why for you? scholarship and activism need to go together
1: How can they not? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I um, One of the questions that's always motivated me is how do we change the world? And again, as I said, when I was a child I was very cognizant of, of racism very early on and I was like aware of the civil rights movement very vaguely. And I became very interested how do people how do people change the world? And um, so I wanted to study that, but it's never enough to study that. You really don't know, can't appreciate that fully without also experiencing it. So through my experience as a, as a political activist, I've been able to explore at a very uh, visceral level, what's it like, for example, to be part of a mass protest? Mm -hmm. What's it like? What kind of courage is required to speak up Mm -hmm. to the police? What is required to create solidarity and partnership with people that are different from you? Mm -hmm. Those are not just intellectual um, questions or activities. They're very emotional, they're very spiritual, they're very embodied. Um, So that's part of my research, but I also am very driven by how do we how do we change the world? I mean that's my life work, mm-hmm. um, and scholarship is one of the ways in which I do it. Mm-hmm. So I've always seen those those uh, parts of me as conjoined.
0: Mm-hmm. So you're you've already spoken about scholarship and activism. Um, there are there are other um, boundaries that your work and your career have crossed. One of them uh, is the fact that you're a professor of geography and a professor of ethnic studies. Um, why, does, why is that a good conjunction? Why does it make sense? What are the benefits that ethnic studies brings to geography? What are the benefits that geography brings to ethnic studies?
1: It was through geography that I first, um, as I said, this was I, when I, I, the first time I took a geography class. I think it was a California geography class. And so they were answering, as I said, these questions, which I did not have the answer to, about my physical environment around me, but they also were providing clues about spatial structures and spatial arrangements, about place. Mm-hmm. And if you think about race and racism, racial structures and hierarchies, they're very spatial processes, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. They vary by region, they're created by place. We experience race and racism I- in 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 location, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I was very interested in Bringing those things together. Now, the problem for me in geography um, is that they had a very limited um, uh, repertoire of scholarship ideas, concepts to deal with race in a, in a, I think, in, in a very sophisticated kind of way. That work was all coming from ethnic studies. Mm-hmm. So, when I was an undergraduate, like at Cal State Fresno, I was taking courses in La Raza studies, and I really, really, really needed that. And mm-hmm. so, really, much of my work has been trying to bring these disciplines together. Mm-hmm. Uh, in all kinds of different in different ways. So let's talk
0: a little bit more about geography. You've written a very interesting article that describes geography as a white discipline. Mm-hmm. So why has it been a white discipline, and what have been the consequences of that?
1: Um, there's, I don't know all the reasons why, but mm-hmm. some of the reasons why is that. Um, we think that geography has, uh, oftentimes, we call it a, a discipline of empire. Mm-hmm. Um, both geography and anthropology were really important to the early colonial projects and empire-building activities, mm-hmm. um, and with that came, a, certainly in the case of geography, came a certain set of of, of racist uh, presuppositions and attitudes that the d- discipline has tried very hard, and I think, tr- done tremendous work at putting aside and discarding them. So, for example, the whole idea of environmental determinism, Mm -hmm. the idea that um, the poverty and inequality of the world could be attributed to people's characteristics, which in turn are a function of their environments, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So really kind of very essentialist, uh, environmental deterministic thinking, rather than thinking about relationships of power. So that's one of the reasons that we we think that it has been very slow in terms of of, uh, better uh, taking the lead in studying racism.
0: So what are some of the consequences that, it's, that there's been this sort of um, neglect in the field? What has geography failed to do? Or what are the w- areas in the history of geography that have been weaker in your judgment?
1: Oh gosh, uh, <laughs> so many. <laughs> On the one hand, I should say, it is a really great field, I think, for example, in terms of gender relations. Mm -hmm. They've done Mm -hmm. really, really excellent work in that field. Mm -hmm. Uh, Again, and we can look to particular people, and we can trace those genealogies within geography about why that's been a really... powerful field of study. But when it comes to the question of, of race and ethnic studies, it's been very, very different. It's been very stilted um, for many a long times when they began realizing, oh, people of color, we should study these things, right? Um, they started off oftentimes from a very kind of um, uh, description Mm -hmm. Let's just describe Mm -hmm. where people live. So it's kind of like the old school kind of geography. Mm -hmm. And then geography went through a big kind of revolution in the 80s and 90s in terms of at least human geography. And they began thinking about power issues. And so it's been very slow. But they have made great progress, I think, in terms of thinking about race as a form of power relation. Mm -hmm. And I think part of that has really begun when geography opened itself up to begin engaging with the work, what's happening in black studies, for example, what's happening over in Asian American studies on those histories and traditions.
0: So you're you're very interested in questions of race. You're very interested in questions of place and space. Uh, You mentioned in passing uh, the problems of environmental determinism. Um, As a scholar activist, one of your areas of expertise and activism is environmental justice. Mm -hmm. So first, how do you define the term environmental justice, and, and why is that something that's crucial for your work?
1: Um, so environmental justice, it started out as being um, I'm old enough that I can recall the beginnings of this uh, of this kind of concept and idea. Mm-hmm. when I was actually a graduate student, a PhD student at UCLA, mm-hmm. I was interested in trying to uh, uh, merge these topics or bring them together and there was, Again, no language or framework. I think I called one of my qualifying exams minorities in the environment, (laughs) for lack of a better word. So um, it was very exciting then when people, particularly Bob Bullard, a sociologist, he began um, thinking and documenting, look at the patterns in which particularly African-American people are disproportionately exposed to different kinds of pollution. So that's the root. And it's kind of looking at the unequal um, access to environmental benefits, looking at disproportionate costs on low income, on communities of color by various forms of pollution. But it since has really, really expanded. Mm -hmm. And I think environmental justice now is really looking at environmental issues, be it public lands, be it pollution, be it access to parks and things like that, climate change, global warming, and looking at the racial and uh, economic lines in how those problems are both produced and experienced.
0: Mm -hmm. So you, uh, in a recent article about the Flint Michigan water crisis, you framed the issue as a result of both environmental racism on the one hand and and racial capitalism on the other. Tell us, can you unpack that uh, uh, claim?
1: Yes, so, um, and and I wanna uh, just, uh, Uh, modify slightly what you say I don't see it as environmental racism and racial capitalism what I'm trying to argue there that environmental racism is a function of racial capitalism far too often when people talk about instances of Flint Michigan or other forms of environmental uh, of racism they're thinking like oh yeah those like the corporations are out to pollute people and they have malicious intent mm-hmm. and or they're out to poison them the, the the local officials and i don't think that's happening at all mm-hmm. you know i want to assume the best of intention and what i want to do is i really want to call attention to the structural issues and processes which are creating these problems mm-hmm. so if we look at the question of flint michigan what's happening again i don't think anybody wanted those people to get poisoned but in fact through a whole variety of different kinds of of events and different kinds of economic structures, these people ended up in a position where paying off the city debt, municipal finance, took precedence over human life, Mm -hmm. right? And to me, that's what I want to argue, that's a function of racial capitalism. So we have to look very deep to understand these logics that are creating these um, atrocious situations.
0: So can you define what you mean by racial capitalism a little more
1: clearly? So uh, for many years, for my own work, for example, I've been really interested in, for example, what we call race and class. Mm-hmm. So what are the racial dynamics that are creating these inequalities? What are the economic dynamics? And what I've been trying to do, at least since the two thousand, is to bring them together and to understand the ways in which economic processes, in particular capitalism, is a racialized project, uh-huh. right? So they cannot always be separated, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, other, uh, so here in the idea of racial capitalism, I'm really drawing on the work of people like Cedric Robinson, Lisa Lowe, who have been kind of the cutting edge in articulating these things and bringing them together.
0: Huh, interesting. So um, as a scholar activist, you practice a kind of socially engaged scholarship. And one example of that effort is your co-authored book, A People's Guide to Los Angeles. So first of all, what inspired that project? And tell us um, how how you describe this. You call it a radical guidebook. Mm -hmm. What does it mean to be a radical guidebook?
1: So the origins for the People's Guide actually stem from a previous book I did that you mentioned, Black, Brown, Yellow, and Left, Mm -hmm. Radical Activism in L.A., And that was looking at what I call the third world left in the 60s and 70s. And I did a lot of interviews and oral histories with people. And as I was talking with these people, they were telling me, oh, well, we used to mobilize here, and we had a co-op on this street, or here's where we fought the police here, or... So they were giving me an unknown geography, really, to the city. Mm -hmm. And I was, like, fascinated. That's not the point of the book, but I'm, like, making notes here and jotting Mm -hmm. these things down. And then when that book came out, I was telling somebody, a friend of mine, Tony Asumi, I said, oh, my God, I've learned about the most exciting places through this research. And he says, oh, well, you should put them together and put it a, a, make it a guidebook. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, that's a great idea. And so that's where the uh, impetus for the project came from. And it took many incarnations over time. It was an extremely long process to get that book together because I was fumbling around looking for the right format. Mm-hmm. You know, at first we thought maybe this should be a coffee table book, um, but ultimately we did we did a tour book. It's a tour guide. Um, and what we did is we kind of like took the idea of a tour guide in terms of, co- so it looks like a tour guide, mm-hmm. but we flipped the content. And so the content is a very counter hegemonic view of Los Angeles. We document, uh, we're foregrounding power in terms of race, economic, gender, and environmental relations throughout the landscape and history of Los Angeles County. Um, so we're trying to lure people in here, come see this place, and look at the power relations which created it. So it's also like tr- teaching people how to read a landscape, giving them the tools that they can go and look out a street corner and not just see a building, but begin to see the state, begin to see environment, begin to see racism and how that works.
0: And you know, you 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 take. Uh, your your readers to all these locations all through LA every part of LA where some event or some activism or some uh, occurrence happened that has significance in terms of these power relations that you're interested in you you know rec- you know this is uh, so I was looking at the bar where um, the first LGBT yeah uh, Cat. B- um, happened which was I- in advance of Stonewall in New York and it's an it's a different kind of uh, Bar Now, it has a different name, and you actually want people to to use this like a guidebook, to walk around LA and go to these neighborhoods and see these places.
1: We do. I think there's something very, um, uh, the power of place is, um, it can be very profound. It's a way to experience both history, the present, the future. And so, yeah, we want people to go to those places.
0: And you you have this long-term goal that this, you know, it's like time out New York. There's going to be a whole bunch of these, right?
1: It is. It's really, we, uh, we have a, a series with the UC Press. Uh, our first book in the series is going to come out in 2018. That's going to be New York, mm-hmm. followed by Nashville. We have Boston, uh, Chicago, uh, Portland, uh, San Francisco Bay Area. We have a whole bunch of them in the works.
0: Really fascinating, fascinating. So you've just come off of a Guggenheim fellowship. Mm-hmm. So tell us about that project. What, what, what was so that,
1: that project, right? project, again, really, uh, all my projects kind of stem from, flow from each other. Mm-hmm. That is uh, stems from the People's Guide, and really. That really got me thinking about landscape and, you know, when you go out to these places, what, they, what they're all about. And I got, became very interested in historical markers and the ways in which we evacuate the violence that was associated with the founding of any place. Mm-hmm. In, in, in the United States, usually it's, it's always racial violence or settler violence because mm-hmm. this was once all native land. Mm-hmm. And so one of the ways in which we do this is through cultural memory, and those are historical markers. So I went and I visited all the historical markers, having to do with Mexicans and Indians in Los Angeles County, and I did field work there in um, identifying the ways how they represented or don't, which is usually the case, how they don't represent uh, uh, the violence associated with the founding of the city of Los Angeles, both during the Spanish Empire, during the Mexican era, as well as during uh, the U.S. conquest era.
0: Hmm. So one of the things that you've written about is um, uh, how settler colonialism intersects with Chicano right movements and um, you talk about a kind of um, blind spot among Chicano uh, activists around the question of settler colonialism. Tell us a little bit about that argument.
1: Well within the Chicano movement which you know we can trace back to the late 1960s part of that was the a big desire on the part of of the the Mexican-Argent population to reclaim an indigenous heritage. Mm-hmm. I mean that's part of the racism of both Mexico and the United States is kind of like to, you know, whiten people, <laughs> right? Or make you think you're all mestizos, right? right? So it's the that separation. So there was this big reclamation that went on uh, about of our indigenous roots which is very important. But we never really paid attention to like, the fact that we're also settlers in the United States mm-hmm. and that Mexican society and conti- continual uh, Latino immigration is predicated on native land, right? of the taking uh, of native land. And that's something that we have not been willing or able to talk about. So it's trying to open up that difficult conversation to be thinking about uh, the X population is simultaneously being indigenous, mm-hmm. being immigrants, mm-hmm. and being settlers. We're mm-hmm. really complicated people.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so among many, the many things that you've discussed, you are also a teacher. hmm And so uh, a couple of questions on this. First of all, um, wh- tell us some of the things that you teach.
1: Well, I'm going to be teaching my first class um, next to, in the winter quarter if for geography, and it's called Race, Nature, and Power. Mm-hmm. Um I'm also have developed a lower division course on environmental justice and I hope to be teaching also courses in the future, particularly for geography about race and space. Okay. And we're also in the process of creating a PhD program in ethnic studies, which I will be teaching in also.
0: So um, tell us how you um, bring sort of um, your identity as a scholar activist into the classroom. Do you have your students engage in activism or
1: how, how do you Good do? question. No, I don't. Do You know what I do though? I'm a very experiential teacher mm-hmm. and I'm t- I, uh, very committed to doing research projects with my students. And I guess there's a couple of reasons. One, I think it's very, um, it, it's very empowering to students particularly first generation students or students who are historically underrepresented giving them tools to understand the world around them mm-hmm. right it's not just talk we actually have evidence we have ways of knowing and these are the, giving them those tools so for example in my class next quarter on race nature and power what we're going to be doing is a collaborative research project and we're going to be making two lists and one of them is a list of all the different types of attacks on the environment, environmental deregulatory actions that have emanated from the Trump administration in its first year in office. And on the other hand, there's going to be all the kind of racist, white supremacist, white nationalist acts, policies, declarations that it's made. So we're going to make these lists and then see how they do or they don't intersect. So how do they insect, intersect temporally, spatially, uh, topically, right? I think, for example, people may not see them as being linked, but for example, at the same time that nobody knows what they're happening over at the EPA, the Trump administration may be, for example, declaring, no, we're not. We're, we're going to end DACA, right? Mm-hmm. So in one level, he's doing that to support the base, but it's also a distraction from what's happening over at the EPA, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. how do we put these things in conversation?
0: Mm-hmm. Can you, um, I mean, how are you feeling? Uh, given the political situation in the United States. I mean, you're an educator you're an activist educator. You, you know, you go, go to work every day. You go speak with young people. You teach young people. Are you, are you feeling optimistic? Are you feeling, how are you feeling now?
1: Um, Mixed. Mixed. Mm -hmm. On the one hand, you know, as an ethnic studies scholar, uh, I've been studying racism and white supremacy for a long time now. And until recently, nobody really, it it had no traction outside of ethnic studies, right? Right, right, right. Everyone thinks, oh, how dramatic, you know, whatever. People get it now. Mm -hmm. They Mm -hmm. really, really get it. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, that's kind of like gratifying. I have a larger audience suddenly, Mm -hmm. right, to talk about these things. On the other hand, it's horrifying. You know, what's happening. Just last week, uh, I've been in m- multiple conversations here on the U of O campus about um, white supremacist students y- trying to use a classroom as a site for organizing. And what do, uh, teachers do we do? Uh, how do we respond to that? Hmm. Right? So this is becoming very, very acute. I've, I've had numerous uh, colleagues on campus, particularly junior uh, colleagues, women of color, contact me for support because they are feeling v- attacked. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's very real what's happening and we're facing a situation where the level of organization coming from white supremacists is really um, you know, nothing that we have seen in a very long time and I think we're well, completely unprepared to deal with it.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So You just mentioned in passing uh, uh, an issue that comes up a lot in academic discussions which we might call the service tax uh, mm-hmm. on, on scholars of color. And another issue has been because of the sort of history of the demographics of the academy, it it is still the case that a good portion of the scholars of color who work in the academy are junior faculty, that is to say, and in particular, uh, uh, junior faculty who are women mm-hmm. and and uh, it's very often the case that those scholars are, are sought out by students uh, from underrepresented groups and there's this additional uh, service. You've just implied uh, in passing that you see a, a particular role for yourself as a senior uh, female scholar of color uh, in trying to ease that burden and to be a guide. Am I right about that?
1: Uh- Yes, uh, I, I know that I could be a guide. <laughs> I would see myself as being trying to be a, a source of support mm-hmm. for that. A guide implies I know what I'm doing, <laughs> and I wouldn't go that far. But yes, absolutely, I do see myself as that's, you know, many people serve that um, role for me, mm-hmm. um, particularly women in geography, mm-hmm. and I am deeply uh, thankful that they have stood up and supported me at times, and that's absolutely a, a core part of who I am and, and what I see my job as doing.
0: And do you um are you feeling that the, um, that the tide is changing in terms of um, the promotion of junior faculty of color up into the uh, higher ranks in the academy? Do you feel that we're getting to a place where we've gotten to a kind of critical mass on that?
1: I'm not going to say that, partly because I'm new to the U of O. Uh-huh. It is my understanding, and I could be wrong, um, that there are probably now two women of colorful professors. There is the uh, vice president for diversity, equity, and inclusion, Um, And there's me. Mm -hmm. I could be wrong, so I don't want to claim that um, for sure, but I'm not certain how many there are. So I don't know if that's great evidence. Uh, A (laughs) lot
0: more needs to be done in that regard. So um, I've got just a couple of minutes left. This will be my last question. Are there any new projects? We haven't spoken about that you're uh, contemplating or working on. Yes, this share with there
1: us. is one. And this goes to kind of where I see myself going and the national picture. So, uh, when I did the project on the Guggenheim one um, that was called Sangre en la Tierra or Blood in the Soil, um, I thought to myself, I want to do this on a national level. Hmm. And I think this is so important because I think one of the reasons the United States faces such high levels of racial conflict and violence is because we have not dealt with the truth of our past. Mm-hmm. And I'm deeply committed to popular education projects which try to foreground this and provide evidence and uh, context for the larger population to begin to deal with the truth of the violence in which this country was based. And until we deal with that, we, I don't think we can ever truly reach a state of racial justice. So what I'm trying to do is like, take that project around the historical markers and do that on a national level for all 50 states. Um, which is a kind of massive project yeah. that will take me many, many years. Um, I just applied for an NSF grant for that, which provide at least funding to collect the data um, on that, and I've partnered now with the Infographics Lab. They've been really wonderful and helpful in terms of helping me think of doing an atlas. So we're thinking of doing a historical atlas of foundational white supremacy uh, for the United States.
0: Hmm. That is a fascinating project. Well, I wish you all the best of luck with the NSF grant. Thank you. And with a job, a a task that seems to me (laughs) mind-bogglingly large, but um, all all the more power to you for your ambition, and I do hope that it succeeds. Thank you. And I want to thank you for speaking with us today.
1: It was a pleasure.
0: I've been speaking with Laura Polito, Professor of Ethnic Studies and Geography at the University of Oregon. Thanks so much for watching.